0: Welcome to the watermarkoc.church podcast. Thank you for listening. Welcome, welcome everyone. So fun to have you here. We're in a series in the book of Hebrews called Wonderful. And uh, you know what's wonderful? I get to wear my sweater in California. First time. It's all you guys have sweaters on, Right. We finally got sweater weather, and you get to wear your jackets, get to wear your sweaters, all that stuff that sits in your closet all year long, you're bringing it out this weekend. But some some people refuse, they wear shorts, they just they just will not go there, because Orange County, it never is cold in Orange County, so that's what people from the East Coast tell us, right? It's a little chillier back there, right, Joe? Cleveland, he goes, hey, he wears shorts all the time, because he's, he's not going to put up with this wimpy California sweater in 60 degrees. Come on, guys, get real, right? Well, it's wonderful to be here with you guys this morning. We have a lot of great things to celebrate in our lives. Life in Orange County can many times be so wonderful. We have great restaurants, and me me being in the restaurant business, I love to partake of all the great stuff and all the great eateries around. We have usually wonderful weather and a lot of wonderful stuff that we get to do, kids sports and Disneyland. I mean, there's just a lot of great stuff in Orange County. And yet, even in the middle of that wonderful Life can be less than wonderful, right? Life in Orange County, even in the midst of all the wonderful stuff, can be less than wonderful. Even the people that I that are on my prayer list that I meet with regularly and get a chance to pastor, I'm just thinking of somebody who has cancer that I'm praying for. That's you know that's less than wonderful. Uh, another person struggling with sickness, been in out of the hospital, you know, surgery, recovering. Uh, another family that's struggling with a teenager that's sort of gone gone sideways and south and is struggling with addiction and praying for that family and that, that wayward child. Uh, bankruptcy, <laughs> uh, lo- loss of business, you know, challenges every day. Just getting up and putting food on the table. Many times in Orange County, life can be less than wonderful. That's why I'm glad that we can gather as a family every week and celebrate the wonderful name of Jesus. That's why this book, Hebrews, was written, to celebrate the wonder and the works of Jesus. Uh, The author of Hebrews is going to say, Jesus is the anchor, right? His finished work, his completed love for us. We just sang about his love, oh, how he loves us. His completed work for us on the cross through his death and resurrection is the anchor that can hold us in the storms of life. Whatever we're going through, loss, defeat, destruction, difficult things in life, Jesus is the anchor, and we come together as a church community to celebrate that. We gather weekly in small groups. We have small group communities, and if you're not involved in a small group community, I meet with a group of guys on Wednesday mornings, a great fellowship of men, and we come together and we hold on to that anchor you know, and so if you would want to be involved in a small group community, have a, an anchor of, of support and encouragement in the storms of life, please go on our website, we have all the groups available, all the times you can find a group, and even email one of the group leaders, they would love to have you in fellowship and community, because that's part of the anchor, is the community of the church, and the author of Hebrews is writing this book to a church that's struggling a church that 's struggling it 's written to first century Jewish Christians that are struggling uh, in their urban setting they 're being persecuted they 're being marginalized they 're being isolated and ostracized because they 've chosen the Christian faith and so life is hard there 's economic struggle there 's persecution from not only from Rome but also from their Jewish community that they love so much that has kicked them out because now they've become Christians. And so they're kind of stuck in the middle, and there's a lot of hardship and persecution and struggle for them. And this author is writing to them because they're asking the question. And it's a common question as I talk to people in Orange County who struggle, right? Who go through storms. This is a common question for people of faith and people that are outside of the faith. I mean, we're a church that wants to have God conversations with people about who God is and what he's about. And one of the biggest questions that people have when they struggle, you know, if God is so loving, then why is life so hard, so stinking hard all the time, right? That's called the problem of evil and pain and suffering. And that's a common question that people have when you're going to have a God conversation with them, right? And the author of Hebrews is writing to people that are struggling in that faith journey, And he is saying to these people, fear and discouragement, right? Because that's really what plagues us in the storms of life. We get afraid, afraid of the future, afraid of the past. We get discouraged by our circumstances and our struggles, and we we start to doubt. We just want to walk away from it all, right? Fear and discouragement can be overcome by fixing our eyes on Jesus, Right? That's what we just did in worship. We fixed our eyes on Jesus, who he is, this, this God who loves us, this God who leaves the 99 to come after the one, the God who showed up in my life, right, the God who brought his people to me to pray for me and, and love me when I was discouraged and down. This is the God that we focus on and that we grab a hold. He's the anchor, Jesus, his work for us, his love for us, in the anchors in the storms of life. And in Hebrews chapter 2 today, I want you to see three things In that passage that we read, and I would encourage you just not to drink of Hebrews from these talks. You can go on the podcast and listen to them, but be reading the book of Hebrews yourself. Be immersing yourself regularly in God's word. Read through the book of Hebrews and let these great truths begin to sink in your soul. Uh, Because there's some great stuff in there. And the three things that the author wants us to grab onto today in terms of hope and an anchor is that Jesus... Is a king. He's a king who gets involved with us. That's why we can trust him and hold on to him. Jesus is a captain. He's a captain who faces death for us. That's why we can hold on to him in the storms of life. Jesus is more than a king and a captain. He's a brother. He's a brother who holds us. King, captain, and brother who is proud of us in the storms of life. Let's look at the argument of the author, a king who gets involved with us. Hebrews chapter 1, last week, Jesus was seated really high. In the first chapter of Hebrews, go back and read that. Jesus is high because he is God's final word. He is not just a created being. He's not just an angel or some kind of a created person, but Jesus is the son of God. And the author proclaims that he's seated high at the right hand of the Father. That's his place of honor, right, in the heavenly realms. And he's God's final word on all of his communication to mankind. He sustains the creation, all put in place by him. He holds it through the power of his word. And he is the radiance of God's glory. So the first part of Hebrews, the chapter 1, is saying Jesus is high, Jesus is high. That's why he's superior Now he's going to switch in chapter 2 and he's going to say, Jesus is not just superior because he's high, he's superior because he came low. Not just because he's high and lofty and awesome in his power and his glory and strength, but because he took on humanity. God took on skin and he came low so that we might know the power of his restoring love. Look at what the author says. It is not the angels that he has subjected the world to come to, about which we are speaking, but someone has written that what is mankind that you are mindful of them, or the Son of Man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under their feet, uh, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at we do see ev- we do not see everything under their feet or subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What is the author saying here? He's going back to the Psalms. Psalm 8, which is a psalm written by David, a creation psalm. And what this psalm talks about is how glorious mankind is. That God in his awesome wisdom, when he created everything, he put mankind on the top of the pile. Right? We were created to rule the creation. Right? We were created and made to care for and cultivate and nurture God's great creation. We're called the image bearers in Genesis 1 and 2. See, he's beckoning us back to the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 and saying that man was created for good, for glory. We were to rule and reign the planet, right, and flourish. And we were to do that by bearing God's image and showing his justice, his mercy, his goodness, his righteousness in the way that we ruled, in the way that we reigned. And yet, what do we see? What are these Christians experiencing? Are they experiencing justice and mercy and goodness? Are they, are they feeling really great about their life? No, they're being persecuted by their government. They're being ostracized by their, their Jewish family. Uh, they're struggling economically. They don't see this glory and this greatness of man. They see the inhumanity of man. They see suffering and death and and struggle and pain, just like we see when we turn on the news every day? Do we see man on the top of the pile? Do we see that, gosh, you know, mankind has a good control on the creation. We're doing such a great job, right? You know what the number one business in the world is right now for entrepreneurs? If you want to get into business, it's the most, you know what it is? The sex slave trade. Sexual slavery is the number one business. Is mankind doing a great job governing the, the creation with justice and mercy, right? Look at the division in our government. look at the hatred between people. Look at the oppression. Look at the homeless, despairing without hope. I mean I mean, look at the struggle, the wars and the threats and all the madness. We don't see mankind on top of the pile. Mankind is on the bottom of the pile, right? We see death and destruction and divorce and addiction and all kinds of stuff. And that would discourage us and bring us to despair. So what does the author say? The author says, at present, we do not see mankind in control and, and governing well in the creation, but what do we see? Just this madness and mess. Is that what he says? No, he says we see Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, right? Why? Because he stepped down... From this place of glory and honor, the king of all creation, and he became one of us. He took on skin and he walked in our place in order to deal with the greatest problem we would ever face, death and suffering. That's how we can have hope in the storms of life. We have a king, a God, who is not distant and unavailable. The gods of the Roman pantheon, right? Zeus and Hermes and all the people that were being worshipped back then, those guys were too busy with their own parties and their own politics to care about humanity. Every once in a while, they might throw a human a bone if there was enough sacrifice and things so the God might come down and help them. But the gods were capricious. They threw down lightning bolts. They were judgmental. Where can we turn? And what does the author say? You could turn to Jesus. Why? Because he's a king that has nail scars in his hand. He's a king that has nail scars in his hand. He's a king that came down from his throne and got involved in creation. And because of that, we have a chance to be restored to our original design. Because he became the son of man. He took on skin. He tasted death. And now where does he sit? He sits on the right hand of the father, but as a human who has suffered with us and for us. That's what the author is saying there. We can trust in him. You know, General Norman Schwarzkopf, anybody heard of General Norman Schwarzkopf? And a famous general in recent times, and he became famous as a general because he got involved with his troops. Uh, He was, as a battalion leader in Vietnam, he was given a very difficult assignment in a very tough territory where the battle was raging. There were bombs and booby traps all throughout the jungle. And soldiers were getting blown up left and right. The morale was terrible. The troops were discouraged. There was a lot of fear. And so what Norman Schwarzkopf did, instead of booming a command, sending other people down there to fix the problem, getting angry, chain of command, what he did was he goes, I'm going to implement some policies that will help these guys on the ground. But whenever one of our guys goes down, I'm getting in my personal helicopter. And I'm going to fly to the scene. We're going to drop down. I'm going to get out. I'm going to medevac that man personally off the battlefield in my helicopter. And I'm going to talk to the troops. And I'm going to encourage their morale. I'm going to get involved. There's a famous story where he he comes down with a soldier. A soldier's been hit in the the mine. And he's he's on the ground. And he's coming to medevac the soldier out. And he gets down and he gets out. And then all of a sudden, another soldier steps on a mine. Not far. And he gets hit. His legs damaged. He's flailing on the ground. And Schwarzkopf realizes that he's just landed in a minefield. Not just one mine. There's mines and booby traps everywhere. And what does Schwarzkopf do? He gets in his helicopter and he goes, I'm getting the heck out of here. These guys, you guys take care of it. I'm a general, man. i got, I got to take care of myself. No, what he does is he gets some resolve in himself and he looks at that man and he walks through the minefield himself. The commander of the troops walks through the minefield. Everybody else is startled in fear. He walks through the minefield every step of the way. He's 240 pounds. The man's filling. He knows if that man flails anymore, he might set off another man and kill himself. He takes his 240-pound body. He's, he's a Yale wrestling star, and he wrestles this man down and holds him. Holds him, saves his life until engineers and others can come and help them. That's why he became a general And they rose him so high. Why is Jesus so high? Because he's a king that gets involved with us. He takes on our skin. He walks through the minefield of sin and death. Not at the risk of his life, at the cost of his life. He knew he was going to dive on the bomb for us. He knew he was going to take the hit on the cross. He knew he was going to face death and taste death for us. That's why when you suffer and you struggle... The author is saying, hold on to a god and a king who has nail scars. He knows exactly what you're going through. He's been on the battlefield with you, and he's given it for you. He's faced the greatest enemy that you will ever face. That's death. You know, people would say that the problem that we face in our culture is that we struggle greatly with the fear of death. Sigmund Freud, right, a popular... Psychotherapist, he, I think he invented this whole thing. This psychologist, he wrote a lot about the fear of death, and he said, you know, mankind, most of our neur- neuroses comes because we're not in touch with the fear of death. It's this struggle that we have inside of our soul. We actually try to repress this and push it down, uh, but yet when we encounter it, it's terrifying. On one hand, we have the death wish. We feel like we deserve death. We have guilt and all this stuff that we're trying to deal with. On the other hand, we're so afraid of death. And it's this struggle that we repress. And when that comes up, it's actually traumatic and life-changing. Leo Tolstoy, who was a great Russian author, writes about his encounter with the fear of death. As he began to grow into his 50s, he started to think about life. And this is what he writes in his memoirs. Something strange began to happen to me at age 50, sort of the midlife crisis. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate, which, without much effort on my part, increased. My name was respected. I enjoyed good physical strength, yet I could not live because of death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without much, no one can live. Is there anything meaningful in my life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Is there anything meaningful in our lives, our careers, our money, our houses, our relationships, that death does not destroy and take from us? Isn't that the greatest philosophical question of life? You know, is there meaning if there's death? Doesn't death just take everything from us and rob us of everything and we go into nothingness and everybody forgets about us? This is what Tolstoy was wrestling with. Today or tomorrow, death will come and those to those who I love and then to me. Soon not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will ever exist who will remember anything about me. Why then do I go on with the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it make whether or not This thing or that thing happens. Um, And he goes on and says, but what was so surprising to me um, that we can fail to see is that for a time it is possible to live intoxicated with life, but as soon as the one is uh, sober, it is impossible not to see that the life in the face of death is a fraud. Once we sober up, once we stop intoxicating ourselves with money, power, and success, and we face our own mortality, we see that life is a fraud because we're pretending that we're something and we're really nothing. This is the reality of the fear of death that haunts us. And Sigmund Freud would say, because of that, we're so driven. We're so driven for success and power and money because we're trying to escape death. We're trying not to deal with the reality of death. We're trying to prove that we're worth something invaluable, but inevitably death faces us all. And it's a terrifying thing to face death. And see, that's what's happening to these people. They're facing death and suffering. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you do not have to face death alone. Someone has come to face death for you. The greatest fear, the greatest terror, the greatest unknown, someone has come to face death for you, and that is Jesus, who is your captain, who has come to face death for you. What do we see? We see Jesus who was made little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for all of us. In bringing many sons and daughters, you and me, to glory, to that place of glory in the future, it is fitting for God, through whom he made everything that exists, should, be made the pi- should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered since the children have flesh and blood, you and me, he too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus came to face the greatest fears and the greatest unknown that humanity has. Death. That steals everything from us. And Jesus came to restore and give that all back to us. He took on humanity. You see, we are held in a supernatural bondage by the power of sin. It's not just a psychological thing or a sociological thing. It is a supernatural spiritual thing. There is an enemy of our soul. If God is a supernatural being for good, there exists the possibility that there's a supernatural being that exists for evil. And the Bible calls that supernatural being the devil. The accuser, the opposer to everything that God wants to do that's good in your life. And the greatest tool that he has to torture us is death, to steal life from us, to cause us to be driven away from the things that we love and do whatever we can to avoid death, medicate ourselves, addict ourselves. It is his greatest tool, the fear of death. And Jesus came to be our captain to face death for us. That word there, pioneer, is called Archagos in the Greek. It can be translated pioneer or captain or champion. It means that Jesus was the first one to step in front of death for us. I mean, if you're on the battlefield and you're facing uh, an enemy that's bigger, stronger, and faster than you, right, you're running for your life. You're hoping there's somebody on your team that's big enough to face that enemy, right, that will stand in front of that enemy for you and take him on for you. You need a champion. You need a captain. This is the idea here in the Old Testament, you see this. You see that many times champions would come and fight a battle for even a whole army. You see this when David fought Goliath, right? David fought Goliath as a champion for Israel. He did representative combat. If David won, all the army of Israel won. If David lost, the whole army would have lost and become slaves of the Philistines, right? And this is the idea here. Jesus wins for all of us. He tastes death and goes, on de- goes against death, and he defeats it for us, and so all of us get the benefit. He does representative combat. He does that as a perfect human. He takes on our skin, and he becomes the perfect man to face death on the cross, to take the penalty of death on, which we deserve, to die for us, and to give us grace and forgiveness that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus died, but you know, for Christians, death died. Death died for Christians. We no longer die. We are no longer separated from God. As soon as we die, we go right into the presence of God. Death means separation, separation from God because of sin, because we bought a lie in the garden that we could somehow become God on our own. And the result of buying that lie from Satan was death, a separation from God. And we see death happen all the time. But Jesus came to deal with that enemy. He died in our place. And he not only died, but he rose from the dead three days later. He went into death, and he blew a hole through the backside of death. Death no longer has to defeat us. We no longer have to be afraid of death. As the Bible says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? That victory of death has been swallowed up by Jesus Christ, and now the resurrection proves that there is another side. You know, Hamlet said, Death is that great unknown, that great territory that people go to and they never come back from, that great explored, unexplored territory that no one ever comes back from. But Hamlet was wrong. Shakespeare, Hamlet was wrong. Somebody did come back. And he showed himself, Jesus Christ. This author is not talking about some pie-in-the-sky thinking. He's talking about a resurrection reality where Jesus showed his hands and feet to his disciples after he rose from the dead. He proved that he was God. And because of that, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Death is now, for a Christian, a doorway into God's eternal future. That's why the author of Hebrews is saying, you don't have to be afraid in the storms of life, even if death confronts you, because you have a savior that has gone before you. He's a champion that's defeated death and come through on the other side. And because he came through, now you can follow him through. And finally, the author says, You don't not only have a captain who faces death for you, you have a brother who is proud of you. You have a brother who's proud of you. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name uh, to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. You see, through union with Christ, when we trust in him, we become a part of God's family. We become a a part of the family of God. And what this author is saying to these people that are being ostracized and persecuted, and people are condemning them and judging them, the Romans are. They're they're being ostracized by the Jewish community. They're saying that that they're worthless, they're no good, God doesn't love them anymore. What this author is saying is Jesus is proud to call you his brothers and sisters. Right? Uh, In the ancient times, how did you present yourself to someone? Did you put a resume together and say, here's my resume, so give me a job? You didn't do that in the ancient times. You put together a genealogy. You ever read the Bible and go, why are these genealogies? These are so boring. Why, do, why does Matthew have this boring genealogy in it? Because the author is showing Jesus' resume that he should be seen as the Messiah. You did it through your genealogy. And in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, go look it up, there's four women in that genealogy. Do you know in the ancient world you would never put a woman in your genealogy? You know why? Because women were second class citizens. Uh, Women were property. And yet in the genealogy of Jesus, four women are in his genealogy. One of them is a prostitute. Her name is Rahab. One of them is an adulterer. Her name is Bathsheba. One of them is a single mom that's poor. Her name is Mary. One of them's. Tamar, an incest survivor. All these are put in the genealogy of Jesus because what that author of Matthew and the Hebrews is saying is Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brother. No matter what we've done, done, no matter how hard life has been, no matter whether we've been addicted or we've been broken, whatever sin we've committed, whatever we think we need to be judged for, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brother and his sister that's the voice that we need to hear in the storms of life. I am with you, I love you, and I'm not ashamed to call you my brother, and we're going to be together in eternity. My sister, we're going to be together in eternity. This morning, as we kind of look to close our service and worship, and we come to this table that Jesus gave us as sort of a reminder of this anchor, that he is with us in the storms of life. Before he faced death for us, he said, do this in remembrance of me. This is an anchor for your soul every week to take the bread and cup and remember that I am a king that came to be with you. This is my body. This is my blood. I'm taking skin on to be with you in the storms of life. To remember that he's a captain who faces death for us, right? The shedding of his blood, it provides forgiveness and covering for all of our sins. We remember that every week at this table. And then he invites series, his brothers and his sisters, God's daughters and sons, have a meal with me. You know when somebody asks you for a meal in the Old Testament or in the New Testament as well, that means I want to be your friend. I want to walk with you. This king wants to walk with you and call you his brother and call you his sister. This is why we can hold on to Jesus in the storms of life, no matter what you're facing today. Let's come to this table and remember and thank him. Thank him for all that he came to do and be, celebrate the wonder of his love. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never done that before. You've never said, you know, Jesus, I want you to be the anchor in my life. I want you to be the anchor of my soul. I realize that you're the son of God and yet you're the savior who came to die for me. I realize you're the one that I need to hope in. I want to put my trust in you for the first time. Maybe you've never done that before. This morning, before we take communion, I'm going I'm to pray a prayer and invite you to do that, to put your hope and life in Jesus. He's the anchor, right? The anchor that takes us through the storms of life. And maybe you want to do that for the first time. Let's bow our heads this morning. If any of you, maybe God's talking to you this morning through the Holy Spirit and saying, hey, It's time for you to grab a hold of me. You're trying to do it on your own, in your own strength, your own power, and your own way. And there's really only one way. It's through God. It's through Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And maybe this morning you want to say, Jesus, I want to put my faith in Jesus, you for the first time. Just pray this prayer with me. Dear Lord Jesus, this morning I opened my heart for the first time to you in a way that I never have before. And I ask you to be my anchor. I want to grab a hold of you because you are the God who came to be with me. You're the God who died for me. You're the brother who's proud of me. Thank you, Jesus. I accept your forgiveness, your mercy, your love. You are my Savior. I follow you this morning, Jesus. I accept your forgiveness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, that means... Jesus came into your life through the Spirit, and you are free and forgiven. And this meal is a first meal with your Savior and your King. This morning, Jesus, we celebrate you. We come to this table and we remember your body and blood. Heal us. Take away our fears and our discouragement and our doubts. Help us to have confidence in you and your love and the storms of life. Touch us now this morning as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church.